Hi, my name is Professor Josh Lingle, and in this session we're going to go through Islam 101, or basic beliefs and pra uh, practices of the Muslims. And, uh, okay, well, I'm going to go through today some of the simple expressions of what an average Muslim really believes, whether he be a Shiite Muslim or of the Sunni sect. And, of course, Shiite Muslims represent about 15% or of the global Muslim population, and Sunnis are about 85%. Uh, I then want to focus in on the points of tension between the Muslims and the Christian faith, and I want to take the mystery out of Islam. And I want to, uh, you to have a confidence about the similarities and the differences between Islam and Christianity. But as Christians, why is it so important for us to learn about Islam? Well, because Muslims are the largest unreached people group in the whole world who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today there are 1.5 billion Muslims uh, total, and Muslims live within the geographical block called the 1040 window, which includes North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And of course, a billion Muslims are in Asia. But the most important reasons that we must know what they believe is that we have to be obedient to the Great Commission. The glory of God is at stake in our witness to the Muslim world and throughout the world. Christ commands in Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20, it reads, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you to do. And if we do not do this, Muslims will continue to enter a Christless eternity. And the church will, in essence, become uh, nominal by not fulfilling the mission that Jesus said for us to do throughout the world. And not just the church, but us individually. We all have a responsibility to reaching uh, the world. Um, I feel called to Muslims, but I also feel called to reaching Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and others around the world. And so I prepare myself in order to do that. And in fact, the curriculum that we have here also prepares you for reaching uh, Buddhists and Hindus and others around. In fact, Sudhakar Mandathoka's class uh, is, uh, has a class on Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, uh, Judaism, a number of other kinds of uh, religions that, they, uh, that he covers there. But for the most part, our focus is on Muslim ministry and Islamic studies. The reality is that in the next 24 hours, 37,000 Muslims will die without Christ. I spent several years going out uh, every day to mosques, uh, evangelizing Muslims. I've, I've attended uh, several universities to study Islam and have interacted at different times with many Muslim imams or uh, priests, uh, pastors, etc., their equivalent uh, in Islam, sharing Christ intimately with hundreds of Muslims. And I've taken years to study out the subject going to six universities in Islamic studies and Muslim ministry throughout the world at both secular and Christian universities and seminaries. And basically I've shrunk down this into a, a kind of a, a one-hour introduction, but then uh, a, a, another 10 or, or, or 15 hours in some of the other classes that we'll see uh, coming up in sessions after this on what Muslims believe and how uh, if, if someone told me they were going to present Christianity to a Muslim audience, uh, how they would do that. And uh, if someone told me that they were going to present a, 
uh, a response to Islam in a one-hour period, I'd feel that it was rather unfair, wouldn't you? Uh, so will you please understand that I'm limited by the time and the context in which I'm speaking and the fact that I try and be extremely careful in what I say and I want above all to be honest about the uh, things that I've studied and know to be true in the Islamic sources uh, and in the Christian sources, but also respectful. The Muslim faith begins with a man, an Arab, who lived in 600 years after Jesus Christ. The founder of the Islamic faith was a man by the name of Muhammad, who the Muslims believe was sent as the final prophet. The story of Muhammad's life is very important to know because Muslims follow Muhammad's example and actions. He is the perfect model for all mankind. Muhammad was born in 570 AD. His father died three months after being born, and his mother passed away at six years of age. So Muhammad was really raised as an orphan child, having been taken into custody by his uncle Abu Talib. And as a young man, Muhammad became a tradesman to Syria for a wealthy widow by the name of Khadijah. Now, at the age of 25, he experienced an extreme change when he married his employer, who was uh, 40 years old. Khadijah was 15 years his elder, and it was a very happy marriage, really. Muhammad at this stage was a marginal figure, figure who owed, owed his uh, success and his popularity to his older and richer wife. Muhammad would spend one month each year in the Mount of the Hira uh, as a religious custom of pagan times, which was up above in the, the mountains uh, outside of, of Mecca. Uh, Muslims believe that at that time, of Muhammad, the Arab Peninsula was in a, a great religious darkness, and they called this period of darkness the Jahiliya. Jahiliya uh, was a religious environment that was full of paganism and idolatry, and it was there that uh, Mecca, now the capital of Islam, is, and that's uh, where the sanctuary, the Kaaba, is, where there used to be housed 360 idols, one for each day of the year. So it was sometime around 610 AD, at the uh, 40 years of age, uh, when Muhammad was uh, on another one of these trips to the Mount Hira. There he began to experience these visions in the, in the cave. Uh, the story goes that the angel Gabriel, uh, Jibriel, appeared to him, squeezed him three times tightly, exclaiming, Ikra, recite, Ikra, read, Ikra, recite in the name of thy Lord. What Muhammad was then to write was the word of Allah, or the word of God, as it was revealed to him through the angel Gabriel. This first experience in the cave was in two ways, characteristic of what would follow. One, Gabriel was to be the channel of communication between God, or between Allah and Muhammad. And secondly, there were fragments of revelation at different times that was to become the Quran. These revelations were actually words written on stone tablets in heaven. In Surah 85, Ayah 21 and 22, and Surah 43, it talks about this as a kitabullah that has been written in heaven, and it was sent down Tanzil over a 23-year period of the Prophet's life. And so the Quran has eternally existed in heaven, 
They're on these stone tablets, and uh, these, uh, and now its message has been communicated to Muhammad in fragmentary wahi or revelation to the prophet through inspiration of the angel Gabriel. So when these uh, revelations would come to him, he'd go into protracted fits. Uh, he would go fits of rage. He would foam at the mouth. Uh, perspiration would break out on his head. It was written uh, by one Muslim author, uh, Imam Malik, that Muhammad was, quote, asked, how does this revelation come to you? And it says that the messenger of Allah said, sometimes it comes to me like the ringing of a bell, and that's the hardest for me. And when it leaves me, I remember that what has been said. And sometimes the angel appears to me, and it's like the, the likeness of a man. And he talks to me, and, he re- and I remember what he says. Aisha, one of his wives, added, I saw it coming down on him on an intensely cold day. And when it had left him, his forehead was dripping with sweat. End quote. Muhammad was initially disturbed by the experience and concluded that he must be demon-possessed. But he went, into, uh, uh, he went to his wife, Khadija, who persuaded him otherwise. And here is a, a paraphrase of the Islamic traditions. So she sat down and told him to come upon one leg and asked him to sit down uh, and asked if it was an angel. And he said to her, yes, it was an angel. Then she had him sit down on the other leg and she asked him again the same thing. And he said, yes, it was an angel. Then she got up in front of him and she disrobed and asked him a third time, Muhammad, was this an angel? And he said, it was, and, he, and she knew that he was telling the truth. So it was his wife, Khadija, which encouraged him that this was from Allah, from God. However, all types of theories were formed over history that perhaps Muhammad was some kind of an epileptic or perhaps he was demonized or that indeed, as Muslims think, he was a prophet of Allah being spoken by the angel, angel Gabriel to, uh, to him. So for the 23 years following, Muhammad received these episodic revelations and he recited them for his followers and faithful companions to hear to memorize, and to recite. According to Islamic traditions, Muhammad was illiterate and could not write. And there's a dispute as to whether Muhammad was actually illiterate or not. Some scholars make a case for the fact that he wasn't illiterate because he was employed as a tradesman, which would require documentation and writing skills. Uh, In fact, even in uh, the Islamic traditions of Bukhari, it actually mentions him writing and so on. So it seems those who say he wasn't can make a pretty good case. And the reason that Muslims want to prove his illiteracy is that they want to show that the Quran is, by their estimates, the only miracle that Muhammad needed. Since he was an illiterate man and dictated the book in such beautiful poetics, it's proof of the fact that it did not come from himself, but from something that needed to come from outside himself and therefore was written down, and so on. So in 610 AD, at the age of 40 years old, Muhammad becomes a prophet. Muhammad's prophetic career lasted for the 23 years he received revelations, and at the beginning he enjoyed the support of his fellow tribesmen in Mecca. His religious teachings were very much one of peace and unity, 
between the different groups between, uh, which were there, including Christians and Jews and pagans and so on. However, around 622 AD, Muhammad lost the support of many as they began to be angered by his message because they, he was speaking out against paganism. He taught that there was only one God and that he was Allah's prophet. And again, remember, he was living in an environment which worshipped idols. Uh, Muhammad, uh, in, in some traditions, says he temporarily yielded to the temptations to allow the pagan gods a place in his religion Islam. But when he reverted back to his original monotheistic message, his followers and pagan tribesmen clashed in hostility. It was then when he lost support in his hometown that Muhammad's religion turned rather violent. He and his small band of followers, Muslims, around 100 at that time, moved to another city uh, called Medina. And there he tried to establish a political community, which is called the Ummah, the community of the Muslims. Even today, uh, Muslims will refer to the global Islamic community as the Ummah. And it was really a growing Islamic kingdom on the earth that they tried to establish. They then began to fight every tribe which opposed Muhammad's quest for political power or anyone who would not convert to his religion. The career of the prophet Muhammad was an especially aggressive one during the last nine years of his life. Uh, he's recorded as having participated in at least 27 battle campaigns and planned approximately uh, 64 others. Uh, some scholars say as many as 84. And this is an extraordinary number, indicating that approximately nine battle campaigns were fought each year. It's reported that these, during these war, wars, there were mass executions where it's recorded on, in Ibn Hisham and Guillaume's book on the life of Muhammad that page 464, there's between six to 900 people who are beheaded in one day. Uh, his men uh, raped many of the 200 women of the Banu Mustalik tribe with his full consent. There were also forced conversions and uh, his men took women captive as their wives. Interestingly, Muhammad did not die in any of these battles, but in 632 AD, he died of an illness, in, says uh, in some traditions, uh, laying on Aisha's uh, 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 lap, but he died of some kind of an illness or something, and leaving behind 11 widows, uh, nine who are alive at the time, and four daughters. Now, please keep in mind that many Muslims worldwide have not actually read some of these stories. Uh, I merely wanted to summarize in a very cursory way the biography of Muhammad uh, for you. And there are classes uh, in this training where uh, different, um, different professors will go through the entire uh, biography of Muhammad with uh, 10 hours of teaching on the biography itself. But if you want further information, you can uh, watch those classes, but you can also read the biography of Muhammad itself. It's called the Sirat Rasulullah of Ibn Asak, 
uh, translated by Alfred Guillaume. It's the Sirach Rasulah, the uh, biography of the messenger of God. And you can read that Oxford Press, tr first translated in 1955, then republished in 2002. But it's the most authoritative biography of Muhammad in the eyes of Muslims uh, throughout history, mainly because it was the first one ever written in 767 AD. And so that's the one that I refer to. It's about a 900-page uh, book, and, um, and it's the primary source uh, for the biography of Muhammad. Of 1,452 biographies that have been written about Muhammad over the last uh, 16, uh, uh, 1,300 years, this was the first one. After hearing a little about the life of Muhammad, you may be able to draw an interesting comparison between Mormonism and Islam. Both Joseph Smith and Muhammad go to mountains, in the case of Muhammad, to pray. Joseph Smith goes into a forest. Both are looking into a, a cave of some sort. Uh, both have angels show up to them, and the angel Gabriel for Muhammad, and the angel Moroni for Joseph Smith. Uh, they both end up inquiring for the angel and ask which religion is right. They both, uh, the response of the angel is that I will reveal it to you. Muhammad and Joseph Smith both end up as polygamists and uh, multiple wives. Uh, both end up with religions that become rather violent. And finally, Muhammad and Joseph Smith end up as heads of kind of cultic followings. Now, what are the teachings of Muhammad's religion, and what do Muslims today base their theology and practices on? As I mentioned, Muhammad's message is believed to be recorded in the Quran. Because Muhammad was supposedly illiterate, his followers memorized uh, the revelations he would recite. They would also write them on bones, on stones, and on leaves, and, uh, and so on. When you go to uh, a historical hadith writings of Sahih al-Bukhari in volume 6, Akbar 509 and 510, you can hear the whole story of how Muslims actually would receive and write down the Quran there. So they were never fully written down during his lifetime. However, after his death, many more Muslims were dying off in the battles the leaders of the Muslim community realized that if those who memorized the Quran were dying off, the, they're called hafiz, those who had memorized the entire Quran, uh, that the Quran would actually be lost like the Jews and Christians before them. So Abu Bakr, the caliph, one of Muhammad's companions, decreed, uh, he took over the power of, uh, or, the, or the control of the community after Muhammad's death in 632 to 634, he, Abu Bakr decreed that the Quran should be put down in writing. So you have the first copy of the Quran there in 634 AD. But in fact, we know from the Hadith and from the Islamic traditions that there is actually more than one codex of the Quran. In fact, uh, you can find there are some 15 or 16 different codices during the lifetime of Muhammad's first companions. If you look at uh, Arthur Jeffrey's book written in 1938 called Materials for the, uh, the History of the Text of the Quran, you can actually find it online, you'll find that there he recorded from the Islamic traditions 
the different codices that were written within the Islamic tradition of the variances. So you have some 15,000 various variances just within uh, those early codices if you compare them and then when they were written down. So we've been using this material with Muslims in evangelism, in evangelism with great effect because Muslims doubt the credibility of our scriptures and they often attack uh, our Bible as being authoritative assuming that the Quran was perfect and that it has always been the same as the Kitab Allah in heaven. But uh, why does the Quran have some 15 different versions as mentioned in the Islamic traditions? There should not be multiple versions, right? It's the unchanged word of Allah. There's not a letter, not a word, not a dot that's been changed from the early Arabic all Qurans are the same in everywhere, according to Muslim scholars. Maulana Maududi and others uh, say this about the Quran, as many Muslims do around the world. Now, the Muslim leaders back, back then at the time realized that the problem too. So when Uthman came into power over the Muslim community, uh, Abu Bakr was in power from 632 to 634. Uh, uh, Omar was in power from uh, 634 to 644. Uthman came into power from 644 to 656, and Ali was the fourth caliph from 656 to 661. So Uthman came into power over the Muslim community, and he actually, in a power move, burned all of the variant versions of the Quran, leaving only one copy of the Quran, which we call the Uthmanic recension of the Quran today. And all Qurans today are supposed to be based off of that Uthmanic recension of the Quran. Further, we read that not uh, all of the verses of the Quran were preserved. The famous Muslim writer Dawood reports, quote, many of the passages of the Quran that were sent down were known, by, uh, were, were known by those who died on the day of Yamama, but they were not known by those who survived them, nor were they written down, nor had Abu Bakr, Omar, or Uthman by that time collected the Quran, nor were they found with even one person after them. You find that in Dawood in Kitab al-Masayif, page 23. Now, I wouldn't have a problem with this, except the Muslims claim that the Quran is unchanged, and their inspiration is that it's perfect and that Allah protects it from all errors, whereas our Bible, the New Testament and Old Testament, has errors, is tarif, is corrupted. But listen to what the Muslim al-Suyuti, the very famous Muslim scholar on the Quran, uh, concludes, quote, it's reported from Ismail ibn Ibrahim, from Ayyub, from Nafi, from Ibn Umar, who said, quote, let none of you say that I've acquired all of the whole of the Quran. How does he know what all of it is when much of the Quran has disappeared? Rather, let him say, I have acquired what has survived. That's al-Siyuti, al-Itkan, fil ulam al-Quran, page 524. Now, despite these problems and the many other kinds of traditions that are, I'm quoting here, you can find these in Arthur Jeffrey's book, Materials for the History of the Text of the Quran. You can also find them in John Burton's book on the collection of the Quran, Cambridge Press, uh, in recent years. But despite all these problems in the Quran, Muslims today base their faith and practices on this, that they're on their holy book, that it is perfect. And there are five articles of faith that they derive from the Quran and from the Islamic traditions. Number one, the 
first article uh, is called A Belief in a Law as the One True God. Now, Allah's character is quite different from that of the God of the Bible. He is transcendent. Um, he, is dis- he is distant. Muslims do not have a, a personal relationships with Allah in the sense that we do with Jesus or with God. Allah does not reside in the hearts of Muslims through his spirit, whereas we as Christians have God's presence within us through his Holy Spirit. Allah is just, but his justice is totally arbitrary. He can do whatever he wants. Muslims do not know whether Allah's will, uh, Allah will reward them with an afterlife in paradise or whether he'll send them to hell forever. Ultimately, the greatest difference is that Allah does not love in the Quran meaning all people, whereas our scriptures reveal that God is love, that he uh, so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. And secondly, there's the belief in, a, in the angels as the instruments of God's will. Now this doctrine in a belief in angels is a very intricate doctrine. Uh, Muslims believe that every Muslim has a, a good angel and a bad angel on each shoulder, uh, recording the good and the bad deeds And on the day of judgment, uh, these deeds will be weighed on a scale uh, for all humanity. Uh, Every man will come before a law. They'll be judged before a law for their deeds, good or bad. So Islam is really a works-based faith. If the good outweighs the bad, they uh, uh, they then may go to heaven if Allah allows. Of course, uh, the Bible says that uh, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, that not of ourself, it's the gift of God, so no man can boast. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Though they believe in the angels, they do not have a doctrine of demonology or fallen angels. Rather, they have genie-like spirits being different than angels who can either be good or they can be bad, and these are called jinn. Now, they say that Jinn can be evil, good, or bad, but I've never met a Muslim who talks about good jinn. In fact, there are areas in the Middle East which are known for being haunted by bad jinn or evil spirits. And even to, uh, in fact, even today, Muslim converts that come out of Islam who are fully immersed in the church still complain of evil jinn and spirits and need deliverance from those demonic spirits and from those jinn. In fact, uh, Dr. Mark Dury uh, has a course in uh, later on uh, called Demitude and Spiritual Deliverance in Islam, which is a very important course for dealing with strongholds and deliverance from demonic powers. And Moses Jibenu has a course called uh, Spiritual Warfare in Islam, which is also very helpful. Third, there is a belief of the four inspired books uh, the Torah, the Law of Moses, the, the Zabur, the Psalms, the Injil, the Gospels, or the, sorry, the Gospel, and then, of course, the Quran. Now, please be sure in your mind of three things here, that you see the Law of Moses mentioned, and you see the Psalms, you also see the Injil, the Gospel, but when Muslims talk uh, about the Gospel, the Injil as the gospel, don't confuse it with the gospels that we have. The Muslims will remind us 
because of a very false, a very fallacious understanding of our doctrine of inspiration, they'll say something like this, look, you've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was one gospel, an original Injil, the gospel of Jesus, of Isa, and it's lost. We don't have it anymore. It's been lost, and we don't care about what these other men had to say in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We want to see what Jesus wrote, the book he brought, just like Muhammad brought the Quran. And they'll also say that we don't have the authentic Psalms of David or the Torah or Moses. Uh, They're lost, and so, of course, the Quran tells us what the final authority is. So we're left with the Quran as the final revelation for all mankind. Fourth, then, there is the belief in the 28 prophets of Allah, 124,000 prophets, they believe, uh, have been sent to mankind of whom Muhammad is the last and final prophet. So there's 25 biblical prophets in the Quran and three Arab prophets that are mentioned there. But um, basically, if you ask them what the prophets are, they'll, they'll quote all the prophets that you would, you would normally think of, uh, David, uh, Musa, Moses, uh, Joseph, um, uh, uh, Yusuf, uh, Muhammad, Jesus, and so on. But um, they believed that Jesus Christ was a prophet, but he was not the last, nor was he the greatest prophet, even though they refer to Jesus as Ru'Allah, which literally means the Spirit of God, or they refer to, uh, they refer to Jesus as the Kalimatu, or the Word of Allah. He is merely a predecessor to Muhammad. Fifth and finally uh, uh, is a belief in the final day of judgment. And we'll discuss this further at a later time. But different Muslim sects have different views on the final day of judgment. In fact, uh, Dr. David Cook's class uh, on Muslim apocalyptic, he's the leading scholar in the world on the uh, certain knowledge of the future events, apocalyptic. And he's uh, written numbers of books on these subjects. Uh, He teaches in our course, Mission Muslim World, university as you continue on with your training in these classes. Um, Also, Joel Richardson has a course on uh, the uh, Muslim apocalyptic uh, issues as well, um, on the Islamic Messiah, uh, which which he, he deals with these issues as well. But there's a final day of judgment, and both the Shi'i and the Sunni sects the two largest believe in some kind of apocalyptic figure which will return one day on the final day of judgment. On that day, people worldwide will recognize Islam as the true faith. And the Islamic kingdom on the earth, called the Khilafah, will be established. The Sunnis are trying to establish it now, whereas the Shiites believe they're preparing the way uh, so that on that day, the uh, Mahdi and the apocalyptic figures will come in. So they have a little bit of a different view. Next is the articles of faith are what, are, uh, are what all good Muslims believe. What we're going to look at uh, next are these six pillars, which are what pious Muslims uh, do. First, to become a Muslim, one must merely recite the Shahada. It's a decree that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. If you recall, there were 
two Fox News journalists who were kidnapped a few years back. They were converted to Islam uh, during their captivity. True faith of the heart is not the issue here. It's merely the recitation of the Shahada in the Arabic that is key to conversion. Second are the daily prayers in the Friday public services. Upon rising in the morning, at noon, in mid-afternoon, and before retiring, Muslims recite prescribed prayers while facing in the direction of Mecca. It's important to understand that these prayers, their prayers, and our prayers are two very different things. Their ideas of prayers are not an intimate communication with God, where you speak to God and God answers your prayers. Uh, It's a daily routine and a duty to be performed to receive blessings and do good works in Barakah for the Day of Judgment. So Shiites pray three times a day, whereas Sunnis pray five times a day. And the five times a day requirement does not come from the Quran, but from the Hadith, uh, from Bukhari and the Islamic traditions, which are sets of uh, writing their second in authority to the Quran. And the story goes that one night, Muhammad flew on a winged horse called the Barak from Mecca to Jerusalem. Once he arrived in Jerusalem, he was taken up to heaven where he met with Moses, Jesus, and the other prophets. And there in heaven, he was told by the angel Gabriel that Muslims were required to pray 50 times per day. Now, when Muhammad heard this and reported this to Moses, to Musa, Moses replied that this was too many prayers per day, 50 times. He said, go back up, talk to Gabriel to go talk to Allah. And uh, he tells Muhammad to go back and speak to the angel Gabriel and get those prayers reduced down uh, in prayers. So basically, in the remainder of the story, Muhammad continues to barter with Gabriel, who flies between Muhammad and Allah, negotiating the number of prayers until ultimately the number is settled down to five prayers per day. After that, Muhammad leads Jesus and Moses and the other prophets and Muslims uh, in prayer and in the ritual prayer. So Muhammad actually had uh, relationships with these prophets. He knew what they looked like. He describes them in the Islamic traditions. And so he has this kind of information uh, according to Islamic historical tradition. Today, for the Muslim community, the Dome of the Rock, which is in Jerusalem, that beautiful gold uh, gold dome, which is there, is intended to commemorate this night journey of Muhammad on the winged horse to heaven. And this story is where the world's 80% of Sunni Muslims get their command to pray five times a day. Now, we as Christians are told to pray without ceasing. And in effect, we're not called to have a ritualistic time set aside where we must pray in a kind of mechanical manner to fulfill an obligation. Rather, we're encouraged and and told to pray without ceasing at all times of day through the day and night, keeping an intimate contact in relationship with God. Also, Muslims are required to go through a ritualistic cleansing process at Mosques, they will have water basins or flowing water uh, or fountains where Muslims will wash their hands and behind their ears and prepare for the daily prayer. We as Christians approach prayer differently. We approach the throne of God to repent of our sins and to receive internal cleansing from our sins. 
Finally, prayer is a very public ritual for Muslims. You may go into a Muslim home and they will bring out their prayer mats and lead their family in prayers right in front of you. And don't be offended by it. They're trying to show off their piety to you. They gather together in mosques to go through the prayer ritual in a very synchronized manner alongside one another. And I'm reminded of what Jesus said in his words in Matthew 6, verse 5, quote, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Third is the fast of Ramadan. It's really a time of solidarity for the Muslim community. The fast is held in the ninth month of the Islamic Hijra calendar, and it's considered the most venerated and blessed month of the Islamic year. Prayers and fastings, charity, and self-accountability are especially stressed at this time. Religious observances associated with Ramadan are kept throughout this month. And during Ramadan, Muslims are also expected to put more of an effort into following the teachings of Islam as well. So it's a time of religious solidarity. Daily fastings are prescribed for all able adults, uh, the Muslim community, during the whole month of Ramadan, beginning with the sightings of what is called the new moon. During the fast, uh, eating, Drinking, smoking, and sexual intercourse are not allowed between dawn, fajr, and sunset, maghrib. So you can ask even an Orthodox Muslim this, but during the month of uh, Ramadan, the fast of Ramadan, it's really been called the feast of Ramadan. And that's because more food is sold in the fast of Ramadan than any other time of the year in the Muslim world. So in Turkey, they will pun on it and call it the feast. And that's because when... The imam uh, can see is that he takes a white, uh, st- a white string and a black string, and when he can no longer see the uh, distinction between the white and the black, the feast is broken, and during the nighttime, they eat all kinds of food, and uh, they break a di- they eat dates, and they drink milk, and it's just a, a wonderful feast of all kinds of saffron and rice, and it's a, it's a wonderful time to be there, and uh, I've shown up the mosque many times with my Muslim friends to be able to uh, be with them and to share the gospel with them during those times, and it's a, it's a time where they're really willing to talk about these issues of, of religion and so on. Fourth, there are the alms for the poor, also called the zakat. And it's like a tithe to the poor. Uh, the giving is 2.5% of income, which is now obligatory among all Muslims. Uh, as Christians, we're, not, we're called to not only give a percentage, but to give our whole lives. Uh, everything we own is his, not just 2% or 10%, but the whole point of the kingdom of God is that everything that we have is God's, and we're supposed to use it for his glory and in the Great Commission to see his kingdom go forth and to give him glory. Now, fifth uh, is the, uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca. The, it's called the Hajj. Muslims from all over the world who can afford the pilgrimage make the trek out to Mecca. Whether one spends one in paradise and the hereafter could also be, ter- be determined whether a Muslim makes this journey. Uh, finally, there is a, 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 a debatable issue, which is called a six-pillar 
to radical Muslims, but it's called the jihad. Some say it's a part of the pillars, others say it's not a part of the, the pillars, but um, it's very clear to me after having read Bukhari and Muslim and all the, the early traditions that jihad was very central to being a Muslim. In the first century, to be a Muslim was to be a soldier. And so uh, the jihad was something that was incumbent on all Muslims at that time. Though many Muslims uh, do embrace peace, they're amazingly loving people today. Uh, we also see that young Muslim men are dressed and radicalized. Uh, sometimes they're in cab- camouflage army fatigues and outfits, clothing draped with M16s and bombs. Uh, these young men whom are news stations and government called terrorists fight to spread Islam in this way with a passion and a zeal uh, f- to follow the example of their leader, Muhammad, in that early period. However, I leave you with this thought. We too have a battle to fight. However, our power and our weapons are much different. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit, from the Spirit of God, not from bombs. Our weapons are not a physical sword, but the sword of the Word of God to be sowed into the hearts of Muslims. This sword pierces the hearts of men, convincing them and leading them to salvation. We too have a a kingdom we fight for. However, our kingdom is not on this earth, like in Islam, but ours is a kingdom of heaven. We know that we're just, uh, just sojourners, travelers here on this earth. We pitch tents that are ambassadors to nations that they don't know God and they're in need of God. We fight for the hearts of men and we sacrifice our lives dying for them and serving them. They too, that they too will join us in the kingdom of heaven one day. And finally, we too have the example of a leader. However, we do not follow a leader who kills for his religion, but we follow Jesus Christ who died for those who he wants to save. He already paid the price for them and bought them. And we need to indiscriminately go preach the gospel in the nations. He became death for us that we might live in eternity for him. Likewise, he died for the 1.6 billion Muslims, the Indians, the Turks, Iranians, Kurds, Pakistanis, who are deceived by Islam. Like I shared in the beginning, we have a responsibility to share the truth to those who have never heard the gospel in the name of Jesus. And the task is huge, but nonetheless, we each have a role in the finishing the Great Commission to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, including the largest unreached people in the world. And if you don't know what your calling is and what your role is in the Great Commission, I encourage you that the Muslim world is there. It's a fantastic mission field, and there are great rewards for giving your life to this final frontier. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great challenge that you've given us to go into all the world, and that the largest part of that world today is the Muslim world, which is going to require the largest resources, the largest number of Christians going, the largest amount of prayer and in the uh, extension of the kingdom of God into that world. We pray, Holy Spirit, you'd give us the confidence, the grace, the love, and the passion and enjoyment to see you glorified in the Muslim world. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.